I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. True North, clap for Jesus. It's good to be in God's house. 11 o'clock, how are we doing today? You doing all right? Doing good. It's good to see you. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We're glad that you're with us today. And those joining us online for the first time, welcome. Our family at SCI Chester in partnership with God Behind Bars. Let's show them some love, family. Clap for them. And I, don't, I, I love the changing of the seasons. Anyone else get like random allergies sometimes and just, you know, and then having children, it's like they have a cold every other day, and then the next day they're running around climbing trees, and it's like when you get it as a parent, it's like, what, what in the world? Why is everything um, getting older? Someone says, getting old ain't, is, is like, it's not for sissies. And my father says, you're not even old, so you can't say that. So, you know, and, um, but listen, I'm so grateful to be in the house of God today. God's placed a word on my heart. I'm excited to share this with you. Um, and... It's found in the Gospel of John. If you have your um, Bibles or your phones or you just you don't have either, you're just ready to follow along. That's all right. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 2. But before we get there, I want to give a little shout out to um, those who have been, um, well, you would describe yourself as new to the True North family. Um, every single month we have, as you hear from this platform, something called Growth Track. I want to just take a few minutes just to unpack a little bit about this because um, I think sometimes in environments like this, what is communicated from platform, it, we immediately like decipher it, you know, and we're like, oh, it's not me. And so we just, it doesn't have any space here and it's just like gone. And I want you to hear something. Growth Track is not a um, new believers course because some of you are like, I've, I've been serving the Lord for 40 years. But if, if you're new to this house, um, you need to, Take growth track. And you say, well, why, Pastor? Why do I need to do that? One of the things that I've realized um, in, in life, um, I've grown in stages of my journey with Jesus, but I remember going to church and I didn't have an option. I was like carried in, in the baby carrier, you know, and, and then when your dad's a pastor and your grandfather's a pastor, it's like you can be a delinquent as much as you want. You will go to church every Sunday. And so there were times where I was in church and I didn't want to be there, but I was there. And then as I grew, I needed to grow my understanding of God, but everything that I would filter from the platform of church was, do I really need to do that? That's how I would do it all, all the time. And so I, I still to this day ask myself, um, is this, speak to the 15-year-old you in the seats. And that's the hardest thing for me to do because when I was 15, I knew everything. You couldn't tell me anything. And I knew the church things. And I always asked the questions like, well, why do I have to do that? And so if you're here today and uh, maybe you were a little bit like me when I was 15 and you're saying, well, pastor, why do I need to do this? Truth is you don't. <laughs> I wish someone would have told me that too. You don't. You don't have to be part of Growth Track. You don't have to go through there, but I wanna give you a, a honest answer about what you'll feel like in this environment over the course of time. Coming on a Sunday, being involved in worship and hearing the preaching of the word and getting an opportunity to connect with people in the lobby is wonderful. It's fulfilling. It's, 
it's, it's great, it's awesome, all of the above, but you will not feel a sense of significance and purpose if you're not rooted and planted in the local church. The Bible says in Psalm 92, 13, those that are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish. And so what does that mean of you? It means that you have to kind of go out of your way, be intentional about bringing the gifts and the talents that God has blessed you with and allowing them to be utilized in the local church. And one of the ways that you do that is First, by going to Growth Track, not only learning about the history of this house, but also how to belong to the family here at True North Church. Um, it's so important that you know what we believe, and not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. And some of you might be like, no, I mean, I'm fine where I am. And, and we never force people um, to take any classes because um, I, I've had this revelation a long time ago that as followers of Jesus Christ, we freely follow. Can you say Amen. And we're not forced by, at gunpoint to say, you gotta follow Jesus. And, and no, we freely follow Jesus. And so I just wanna encourage you, wherever you find yourself in your journey today, um, if you have yet to take growth track, if you're not serving on team, you haven't found a crew, um, you don't know the belief system behind the, the, the foundation of this house, I wanna encourage you today is class one. There are three classes. The classes start at 2.30 after our third service on a Sunday um, you get to meet um, a ton of the team. I love it. And there's kind of, this is my selfish kind of like little point is uh, I'm there typically to get to chat with as many people as I possibly can because I don't oft, often get to connect with people. And uh, so it's very special to our team. That's where we get to meet as many new faces to the house um, as we possibly can. And so if that's your next step, let me encourage you to, it's not too late to sign up, stop at next steps, go on your phone, sign up that way, or just um, say, Pastor Jesse told me I could just show up. And I always say that the team tells me not to. I'm sorry. They shouldn't tell me I can't do it because then I would. Okay, just, just if you need to go to Growth Track, just go there. Is that all right? Okay. Man, I don't know why. It's just so hard. Okay, John chapter eight, verse two. If you're with me, say I'm with you. It says at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down so that he could teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Jesus is teaching people in the temple courts. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's not a shock, it's not a surprise. They were always out to trap Jesus. They wanted to make him look bad. Maybe you have people in your world who's always trying to make you look bad, always trying to point out your, 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 your flaws and your, your weaknesses and your shortcomings. And the problem is, is when they're doing that with Jesus, they're aware of the fact that he has none. <laughs> and they keep trying to catch him. They keep trying to present him with, with such a situation that he, that he speaks against himself or he conflicts with, the, conflicts with the Old Testament into what he's teaching. But we know in the scriptures, it says that Christ did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill it. And, and so in this environment, the Pharisees, this self-righteous, now when I say self-righteous, this is what I want you to understand. A self-righteous individual is someone that finds their significance 
their righteousness, their right standing with God based upon what they do. And sometimes it's not always based upon what they do, but what they don't do, meaning they find other people who they think they are better than and they acknowledge their brokenness while ignoring their own. And in some weird way, they look around and they say, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that person, that person, that person, that person. And they form this sense of identity or righteousness based on what they have done or have not done. So the Pharisees are definitely the prideful, self-righteous individuals in this situation, bringing before Jesus and all of the crowd a woman caught in adultery. You may have heard this passage of Scripture before, and I want you to understand the challenges that, that Jesus faced in what they attempted to trap him with. Because on the surface, you can say, well, Jesus is gonna fix it, it's easy. It's, and for him, it is, but there are things that he needs to be cautious in how he approaches the situation. And as always, Jesus does it with such grace and with such mercy and such truth. And there's, it's flawless in the way that he deals with this situation. When I was talking in the first service, I said in this parable, it's not a parable, it's a passage. It's really transpired, it took place, recorded in the Gospel of John Jesus has to deal with this constantly with the Pharisees. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 22, it would be the moment in which they were trying to trap Jesus. Do you remember this in my mind? I, I picture this situation where they throw a coin at Jesus and they were talking about paying taxes. This is important to us, taxes in New Jersey. So, and they were trying to, they were trying to say, hey, Jesus, who should we, who, who, who should we, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? This is important. You need to listen to this. And he throws, and in my mind, I just see the situation unfolding. He throws the coin back. He says, give unto Caesar or render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's. And they're like, that didn't work. <laughs> and so again, they're coming back and they're trying to trap him. And this would have been, according to some commentary, planned out. It was a plan they were trying to figure out. They Pharisees often in that time period and through commentators they would write and scholars would write that the Pharisees were known to kind of get into people's business and find out who was wrong and who was doing things dishonoring to God and to make kind of a, a, a public statement out of people who were living in sin. In verse six, this story continues. And it says, but Jesus, as the woman is brought before him and they're accusing this woman, it says, Jesus bent down. He bent down. I would, but the hamstring's still a little tight. He says, he, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, at first glance, it would seem just meaningless or insignificant, the simple fact that Jesus bent down. But I want you to stay with me. This is a, a significant kind of, movement that Jesus is doing and the act of what he's doing actually conveys something to the, to the Pharisees. It doesn't mean much to us. We're like, oh, he just bent. Maybe he, he saw something on the ground or made, no. No, this means something significant. He bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. Jesus stood back up and said to them, looking at all the Pharisees in the eye. He said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and began to write on the ground. 
Now, when we look at this, we, we see the situation and we know that adultery, according to God's, God's word, is wrong. And we know that they brought this individual woman before Jesus and she was caught in sin. And, and so they're trying to say to Jesus, hey, this woman is sinning. What do we do with sin? And how do you suggest that we deal with sin? Now, did you see that they're trying to trap him? They want him to say that, well, Moses gave you this, Abraham gave you that, but I'm bringing something different. But what God gave to Moses and to Abraham was, was the word. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus is the word. So you're not gonna trap him in what he has already stated. He knows what the Old Testament law says. And so as they're beginning to accuse him, Jesus is aware of this one fact. A sinner is bringing forth another sinner. And they want me to ignore the fact that yet they sin, but there is also someone before me that sins. So Jesus speaks to them and informs them, you also are a sinner. And so it's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus speaks to the pride and the arrogance before he speaks to the self-condemned. And I love it because when, when we view Jesus as our savior, we need to recognize that Jesus went to the cross and he died for the self-condemned. He died for this woman so that he could be her savior. But he also died for the self-righteous, the arrogant and the prideful. He died for them all. And he gave of himself to save all the world. Now, how can Jesus in such a situation demonstrate God's love and his grace to a sinner without being unjust or without breaking his own law. <laughs> According to the Old Testament, especially during this second temple period, it was known in such a time, or it, it, during that time period, that such violations of the law were addressed with a very, in a very specific way. Let me say it that way. So for example, if there, was, um, if there were individuals caught in adultery, in violation to God's law, in such a time period, the man and the woman would be brought before the people and accused. Typically, at the temple gate, they would be accused. But not only would they be accused, there would have to be two witnesses that could confirm the accusation that was being made. Why? Well, because anyone could be frustrated at someone and say, I want to destroy their reputation. I'm accusing them and bring them before the people and accuse them. But the law says that, no, you can't just accuse someone, both man and woman. There has to be present two eyewitnesses. But not only that, there needs to be, they need to bring the situation to the high priest. It needs to be brought to the high priest. Well, the Pharisees in this situation violated all three of those rules. They didn't do any of them. There was no identification of two eyewitnesses they didn't bring the situation to the high priest. They brought the situation to Jesus. If they were really concerned, they would have brought it to the high priest. They were not. They brought the situation to Jesus. And to not only mention that, they didn't even bring the man that was caught in adultery. They just brought the woman. So they know that they're in violation of so many things, yet Jesus just pauses. He doesn't say anything. And as soon as they bring the woman before Jesus, it says in the scripture that he stoops down for the first time. Now in this time period, when such situations would occur and they would bring the situation to the high priest, often what many commentators said would happen is the priest in the temple would kneel down. Man, I wanna do it, but if I kneel down, I might not be able to get back up. And he, 
when he would kneel down, he would write on the floor of the temple in the dust, or if he didn't, he would get a piece of, of charcoal, and he would write the law that they were accused of violating on the floor. And he would write it on the floor so that they would be made aware that you're in violation of this law of God. And many commentators, and I, there's a liberty in this because it doesn't specify in the text, this is what transpired, but many commentators suggest this is what happened is that Jesus bent down and he wrote the law of what the woman had violated. But then Jesus stands. And it says that the Pharisees and, the, and, and those that surrounded Jesus kept accusing, accusing, accusing. And so then Jesus bends down again. And when he bends down the second time and he begins to write in the sand or on the floor of the temple, maybe there's dust and he begins to write. In that time period, not only would they write the, the law that you were in violation of, they would begin to write your name. Every year in the Jewish calendar, they would have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. The high priest would immerse himself 11 times in a baptismal tank to ceremonially be cleaned between each hourly sacrifice that they would make. The Day of Atonement was the way that the high priest would deal with the sin of the people so that they would be in right standing with God because sin needs to be dealt with. So in that time period, a priest would make sacrifices and would do certain rituals in order to be cleansed or to be made right with God. But that atonement was not forever. It was only something that lasted a short period of time and then needed to be done again and again and again. And every year that they would have the day of atonement in Jeremiah 17, they, they show what the priest would say. This is what the priest would say before all the people of God. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Any man that was raised in the Jewish customs would have heard this verse quoted every year by the high priest. Every year. If the men were 45, 55, 60 years old, they would have heard this 40 or 50 or 60 times in their life, that verse quoted over and over. They knew what it meant and they knew what it meant for Jesus to stoop down and to begin to write. In verse nine, it says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. It's as if the first time when Jesus bent down, they probably thought that they were in the clear because Jesus is writing the law that this woman had violated. But then when Jesus stands up after writing possibly the law that the woman had violated and looks at them all in the eyes and says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then it's that moment of revelation that, yeah, I may be better than her, but I'm not that good. That I too am broken that I have my own flaws, my own sin. And so Jesus speaks to the humanity of this self-righteous group of men. He says, if you don't have sin, you can throw a stone. The only one who had a right to throw the stone was Jesus, but he doesn't. He demonstrates mercy not only to the woman, but also 
to the Pharisees. Both groups need a savior, not just the woman. They need a savior as well. And they need a savior because they are also sinners. And so as Jesus stoops down the second time, it says at this, when he started to stoop down the second time and write on the ground, those who heard began to walk away. They didn't want to see their name written on the floor. <laughs> the older ones left first until only Jesus was left. He's left there standing with the woman. And Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. John 3, 17 teaches us as followers of Jesus, when Jesus declared, remember in the conversation with Nicodemus, he said, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world. So condemnation is often what keeps people at a distance from God. Ever invite someone to church and they say something like, oh, I can't, I can't go to church. You know, that place would catch on fire or the roof would like explode or something bad. And you know what they're really saying to you in some way? You don't really know me. Can I tell you something? People that are self-condemned, they're aware of their own brokenness. And then the other side of it is when you invite someone to church and you get the, the kind of the laughter like, ha, 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 hey, I'm glad that works for you. I'm all right. And what is that? It's a demonstration that you may be in need of something, but I'm not. I'm good. I got a retirement. You know, you're like, how, let me know how that works for eternity. Um, but, but this is the thing in our humanity. We can either be self-condemned, aware of our brokenness, or we can be so prideful and arrogant and we can diminish the need of God. And so when we say things like self-righteous, we're, we're saying, you, you, when we talk about salvation, church, in this house, we talk about that salvation comes through one name and one name alone. It comes through the name of Jesus. And the Bible says that in order for us to be saved, we must confess with our mouths. And I think this is a powerful thing for you to understand. The reason it says in Romans 10, 9, that you must confess, there's something powerful connected to the, to the ability for us to just speak and proclaim and declare things. So when you say, Jesus Christ is my Lord, not think it, speak it and declare it, there's something significant in that. And that's why the Bible says that when we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. You know what it's saying? It's taking our confession and our belief and it's saying that the finished work of Jesus Christ is significant enough, the shedding of the blood of Jesus is significant enough to deal with my sin, my sin. And so now I'm in right standing with God, not because I'm righteous, but because he is righteous. And because I confess my hope and my trust and my faith are in him, I stand not in my righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when we proclaim that I'm in right standing in with God, it's not because I can speak Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. It's because I've confessed my belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I can, but he can, amen? And so that's where we find salvation in the cross of Jesus. 
And so for us to, to go through life, listen, when you go through the motions of life, sometimes you can be so caught in habits and with, with routine in life that, that you, you can almost look at the cross as common. It's common because you see it so frequent and you know about it and you know the story, but there's nothing common in the cross. When Jesus was having this conversation with the woman and with the Pharisees, I often try to think to myself, he knew that he was getting ready to go to the cross to become sin for the world, to carry the weight of sin upon himself so that all who would confess his name would be saved, would be saved. So how do we walk as sons and daughters of the Most High? How do we carry the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that Jesus displayed it here? To carry grace and love and mercy, but also be compelled to no longer live a life of sin. I've learned something in walking with Jesus that, that you can do one of two things. You can become more dependent on God or you become more dependent in yourself. And I think it's very hard to equally walk in both. I think if you cry more and you become more desperate to hear God's voice, you're in a safe place. <laughs> like I don't, you know. I remember having a conversation early on in ministry and I said to someone, a pastor friend in, in Iraq, the Bishop of Baghdad. And I remember asking him the one time, I said, man, I just, some days I get up, I'm like, I just need to read. And I'm like, I don't, I was almost saying to him, like, I, I don't know if I'm all right. And he says, oh, you're, that's a good place to be. <laughs> dependent on God's voice. Dependent on needing to hear him. All of us need to hear him. But some of us just don't see it as that significant. And I believe with all my heart that God wants to speak to each one of us as sons and daughters. If you've confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, you've repented of your sin, you believe that he was raised from the grave, the Bible says you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. That same power that raised Christ from the grave abides and dwells within you. And I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit can guide and direct you in ways that are honoring to God. How do we live a life of holiness before God? Do we just strive in our own effort to just do everything right? I've met people like that. They're just really grumpy. <laughs> it's like the joy of the Lord is not part of their Bible. They just, you know, they're just, oh, I will do this and this and this and this. And, and I get it, but we can't reflect Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to show grace and we need to show mercy to people who are far from God. But we ourselves need to be careful. We need to be careful that when self-righteous people come to us, we don't demean them. We don't yell and we don't scream. We don't lose our testimony when self-righteous people come. Let's learn to be motivated by the love of God in the way that we reach other people. One of the hardest things and most challenging things in our culture today, I believe, and it's, it's not a shock, we live in a fallen world. And we're living in a culture today where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And then we have a world that's being turned upside down. And everyone's like, I don't understand what's going on. I do. There are billions of people that think they're God. And they're serving themselves. 
then if you want to know how you bring peace and order and, and love and joy, it's a surrendered life. It's a surrendered life to Christ. And he is the one that has placed an establishment of, of our humanity and our procreation and our marriage and all of that. And if we surrender our lives to him and live a life with conviction, it's a word today that, can I just say this? Your conviction is always for sale in a society that we live in today. People are going to ask you how much. They're going to tempt you with a promise and allure of, of a new job, a new promotion, save you a few dollars, lie on this, cheat in that, just to get ahead. Stand strong with the convictions that you have. And for those of you who've done things that are dishonoring and displeasing to God, ask for forgiveness. The Bible said that he is faithful to forgive those who call upon his name. But I want you to know that God desires to use us. One of the greatest things as a child of heaven is to be used by God, used by God. And some of you, I, I know, I, I often say this of myself at times, well, God, how can you use me in this situation? I don't know what to say. I can't relate with these people. I don't know their story. I don't know their situation. But all we need to do is to trust that the Holy Spirit will speak through us to give us the words at the right time. The greatest gift that God has ever given us is Jesus. And Christ has given us the gospel. The Bible says that the followers of Jesus have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Each one of us, not just a few, it's not the, the fivefold ministry in Ephesians 4. It's this gift of reconciliation. You'd be like, well, what is the gift of reconciliation? It's what's been given to you. It's been given to you so that you help with the message of hope to restore people back in right standing with God. And you may say to yourself, well, I don't know how to do it. Jesus has already done it. That's why it's called the good news. It's called the gospel. And you're called to proclaim it, to let people know who are living in a life today with no hope, with no faith, with no joy, no promise of tomorrow to bring the gospel message into a broken world. That's what we're called to do. Can you say amen? That's what we're called to do. That's what God has commissioned you. And I, I promise you, church, that when you get alignment with the purposes and the things of God, life becomes exciting. Life becomes exciting. Someone said to me the other day, they said, I don't, I watch church people from a distance I said, I wouldn't tell too many people that. That's a bit weird, but, you know. But really, just to see if it's real. The last three people I ran into that I haven't seen in about 10 years, you know what's the first thing they said to me? I wrestled with some of them in college and I played football with others and some I just knew them from school. You know the first thing they say to me? It's the first thing, every one of them, same thing. Are you still doing that, that uh, church thing? They don't even know how to say anything else. You're still doing that church thing. You know what they're really saying? Is that still, do you still have those convictions? Or are they gone? Do you still believe in Jesus? Or is that just a, just a, a, a fad? Just something that came and, go, and just went. Do not grow weary in doing good. For in such a time, there'll be it. Listen, I, I know this to be true. Some of you have been, you've been honoring God. You've been faithful in these seasons of life. 
and you're just saying, God, all the sinners around me are getting blessed. Can I tell you something? There's a harvest in store for you. I believe with all my heart. Stay faithful for what you're doing. Keep honoring God. Keep focusing on Jesus. Keep running your race. Do not give attention to people that are running in, in front of you, beside you, behind you. Just keep running after the things of Jesus. I'm telling you, God sees you. You're not lost in the crowd. So you're like, no one sees me. Listen, the only one that's worth being seen by, he sees you. Jesus sees you. Society may not see you, but Jesus sees you. Listen, and I know, I've just been, sometimes when you're younger, you're like, no, I just want to get that good job. You're like, what's a good job? And you're like, I don't know, just make a lot of money and, you know, have that big house and the car. Can I tell you something? I can't tell you how many people I've talked to with all the stuff that would give it up in a heartbeat to have a, a family that loves Jesus to have real friends that love them and stand beside them. And so maybe you just need to keep running after Jesus. And if you do it long enough, you'll find out that really the substance of life is a life surrendered to God, is a life that runs with conviction, is a life that doesn't run proclaiming that they're perfect, but it's a life that runs declaring the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God. Listen, I just want to remind you today, let, let your pastor just be a voice of reminding to you that God's not done with you yet. He still sees you, and he still desperately wants to use you. Amen? Come on, bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me pray with you today. If you're here today, and maybe in our time together, in the short time we just had, maybe you're asking yourself questions about salvation, and how do you know if you're saved? And you might be saying, well, I was raised this, and I was raised that, and I was raised in this church. And, and when I was little, I got baptized, or I went through this program, or I did this. And I want you to know that salvation is not it's not a genetic thing. It's not passed down just because your parents are saved and you're saved. Just because you went to church doesn't mean that you're saved. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're saved. The Bible says that salvation comes through confession and belief. Some of you might be like, well, what do I need to be saved from? The Bible says sin separates us from the Father. Sin. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, not even one. And sometimes in our self-righteousness, we're like, yeah, I've sinned, but not as bad as. The Bible says if you've committed one sin, you might as well have committed them all. So how do we deal with sin? Well, the Bible says the only way you can deal with sin is through the shedding of blood. And so that's why the rescue plan of heaven saves humanity. And what was that? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world. And that son is Jesus. When he went to the cross, I love this. Some people look at the cross and they're indifferent to the story because at that time they might not even think it's important to their story. But my friend, you'll never understand your story until you understand his story because your story is intertwined with his and so if you want to begin your life, really your life today by saying yes to Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer. But I want you to be clear about what you're saying. I don't want you to just be filled with emotion, but be reckless in your decision. What I'm asking you to say is, are you willing to say yes to Jesus and surrender your life to Jesus? To no longer serve yourself and to do whatever you want, but to live under the authority of heaven, under the authority of Jesus, the King, the Lord, our Savior. The Bible says that if you're ready to receive Jesus, that all you need to do is confess. Repent, confess, and believe. 
So we're going to say a prayer. It's not a magical prayer. It is a significant prayer when you confess it. Because it's out of that confession and that belief that the Bible declares. This is what the Bible says. A new creation has formed. And the old is gone and the new has come. What is that new creation? It's a child of heaven. The Bible says before this prayer, the spirit is departed. But he explains to Nicodemus that every single person must be born again. Not of flesh, but of spirit. How does that happen? Through the confession of one's mouth and the belief in one's heart. And so if you're here today joining us online, wherever you find yourself, if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, we're gonna say a prayer. So church, just like we do every single Sunday, let's lead people to Jesus right now where they find themselves. So repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Heavenly Father, I receive your son Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and come into my heart. I believe that you died on the cross and conquered sin and death. I'm now a Christian. Christ now lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church. Clap for everybody that said that prayer. Come on. Come on, church, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Hey, listen, if you said that prayer today, I want you to know that we're so excited for you and we wanna do everything we can to help you in your journey with Jesus. And um, just listen to me. If you said that prayer, look at me right now. I know that there's busyness happening. People are getting together their stuff and they're getting ready to run out. But um, that was a pretty good clap for the 11 o'clock service. I'm not gonna lie, that was pretty good. But the Bible says that heaven throws a party, celebrates every time someone who is far from God comes home in relationship with the Father. So I want you to know that you got a, you got a good clap today, but, but heaven's rejoicing for you. Heaven is celebrating you. We wanna come alongside you. As you exit today, this main auditorium, you'll see a big banner that says, I made a decision to follow Jesus. You'll see people underneath there waving this uh, Bible. It's a New Testament Bible. We wanna help you in your journey with Jesus. Ways for you to view this, not as a church to attend, but a family to belong to. We wanna come alongside you. We'll do everything that, um, that we can to help you in your journey. And if you're joining us online, you said yes to Jesus. We're excited for you. Let our team know. Our pastors are online there chatting um, with, with some of you and let them know that you said yes to Jesus. We'll send you this resource as well. And for everyone else, one final challenge for you because I know some of you have eluded a challenge this entire message. And so this is my last go, all right? Um, I know some of you, that's just your goal. If you can just avoid movement, then you're like success. You know, it's just, it's, that was me, but... Um, some of you are going through some real stuff and you just keep telling yourself, I got it. Can I? There's a reason God calls us together as a family. There's a reason he does. And so if you need prayer, maybe physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally in your marriage, maybe for your business, your job, whatever it may be, we have an amazing team um, in Next Steps, pastors, team that would love to come alongside you and pray with you, encourage you wherever you find yourself. So um, if you say that every single Sunday, I should probably tell someone and get prayer Ah, no, there's too many people. Ah, stop making an excuse. Walk your feet over there. I'm telling you, you'll be grateful for it. Um, there's, you, don't, you don't need to give as many details as you may think. Just say, I need prayer for this, and they'll stand beside you and pray with you. And I'm telling you, that's fuel to get you through the week. Amen? So come on, stretch your hands to heaven. Let me pray a prayer blessing over you before we go. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. God, I thank you that even when we fall, you're faithful to forgive to pick us up, to remind us who we are in your eyes. And I thank you that you don't define us by our mistakes. I thank you that when you see us, you don't see our brokenness. You see the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us this week to walk in